0: many of us in this room have been blessed with a marriage partner i appreciate not everyone and that does cause pain to some but i hope you won't mind me asking the following question for those of us who are or have been married can you remember the build-up to your wedding day how did the preparations go was it all smooth sailing or did things get a little stressful I was useless at preparing for our wedding and as a result we very nearly did run out of food and drink you see I married a woman who like many had been dreaming about her wedding day ever since childhood Emily knew everything exactly how she wanted everything from the colour scheme to the table decorations to the food to the music choices very good I thought I'm marrying the woman of my dreams. I really don't care about anything else. I'll leave it all to her. I actually thought that's what she would want me to do. Oh, how wrong I was. Just a day or so before our wedding, we encountered a problem. You see, I'd given Emily the names of my friends that I thought we should invite, and I'd left it to her to send out her beautiful handmade invitations. Only for none of those friends did I point out that they also had children. Emily had no idea that on top of the numbers she'd been working with for the last three months there are about eight children, plus a few of my friend's wives who had also left off the list. Somehow I had just assumed that Emily would know the full family arrangements of my friends, despite the fact that she hadn't met half of them. Now You all know Emily well by now, so you can imagine how she reacted to this discovery 48 hours before her wedding where were we going to sit all these extra people how were they going to fit into her carefully made table plan and were we going to have enough food to feed them with There was a real possibility that we wouldn't when emily discovered what i'd done or rather not done she had steam coming out of her ears let me tell you now i admit i had very little idea of the huge amount of stress Emily felt organising our wedding. Emily was under pressure. She felt great expectation from in-laws, from friends, family, that she'd never met. If people turned up and had no seats to sit at, that would have been very embarrassing for her. Now, don't worry, the story ends well. Emily did indeed manage to throw in about 10 extra seats. And I think she's just about forgiven me by the time we said our vows. But she does still like to tell this story every time we're leading another couple through marriage preparation. 10 years down the line, I'm just grateful to be married at all. There is a lot of pressure put on wedding preparation. 2,000 years ago, it was even worse. We need to realise when we come to this story, that back then, running out of wine at your wedding was not just a minor inconvenience, it was a social disaster. It was a disgrace. It would have been a topic of village gossip for months Indeed, the family that could not provide enough wine for their child's wedding would have had to live with the shame of that shortcoming for a very long time. Indeed, in the ancient world, people lived almost in fear of creating a public spectacle. They were anxious never to bring disgrace upon themselves, and they go to great lengths to avoid it. And although the text never says it, We can imagine the bride hearing that the wine's run out and bursting into tears. We can imagine the groom rushing around doing his best, trying to spare his bride the ignominy. Now it's when we realise the reality of this background that we see something of the wonder of this story. It's simply beautiful that Jesus cares. Now remember, there were only three years between Jesus' baptism and his death on the cross that was not a lot of time to fit in an awful lot of very important things Jesus had to help the people understand who he was he, he had to travel the land up and down raising attention as to what God was doing he had to choose disciples and then go through the painstaking task of training them up he had to teach crowds a whole new way of understanding the scriptures and how to approach life and he had to do all of this before he upset the powers that be so much they tried to dispose of him. It's fair to say that Jesus didn't have much spare time. He was not sat around twiddling his thumbs as he walked the road to the cross. And when we read the Gospels, we get a sense of the great urgency that Jesus lived his life with. Yet that said, this story shows us very clearly the values that Jesus lived with. He really did care about the people that he dwelt amongst. At the start of this story, Jesus is seen as part of a very real human family, doing what human families do. He wanted to take the time to rejoice with a couple getting married. He could see their love for one another as a wonderful and beautiful thing. He wanted to be part of the celebrations. And then when this great social faux pas starts to play out before his eyes, Jesus is fully prepared to address himself to the problem. It might seem an issue of little consequence to us, running out of wine, but Jesus really felt for the family involved. He he understood the shame that it would cause. He had compassion for it, and he dealt with their embarrassment in a very unexpected way. Indeed, by the end of the event, the family would have been known throughout the village for their great generosity in supplying the very best of wine, rather than being poor or stingy or rather unprepared. I don't know if we've ever felt too insignificant to be cared about by God. I don't know if we've ever assumed our worries or anxieties to be too trivial to be taken notice of by the Lord. This story puts pay to that. God really does care. He really does pay attention to the issues of our everyday lives. Now we've already seen enough beauty in this passage to mean that this story fully deserves its place right at the start of the Gospel. But of course, as yet, we have not even begun to scratch the surface. So far, we have only approached it on a very human level. It's time to see the divine. If you were here uh, last week, you may remember how the previous chapter ended. It finished with a dramatic statement from Jesus to Nathaniel. Nathanael had been very impressed that Jesus had had knowledge of him before they'd even met. But when he expressed that, Jesus turned to him and said this. Nathanael, you will see greater things than that. Very I truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And we thought last week about what an incredible statement that was. Jesus was telling Nathanael that in the coming days, he would see heaven itself opened. He would see the transforming love of God burst out into the world. He would see the truly divine come to bear on the truly human. It was an incredible promise. And this story is the first part of its fulfillment. But why was God doing such amazing things through Jesus? What was the purpose of the miracles that we're starting to read of here? Well, they weren't just to impress people. They weren't just awesome displays of power to try and blackmail people into the kingdom, all starry-eyed. Even if that had been the plan, it wouldn't have worked. As the gospel goes on, we read of lots of people who saw Jesus do incredible things, but they never took a step of faith. They always wanted to see one more. Just one more miracle, Jesus, and then we'll believe, they would say. Of course, sadly, they never did. Now, these miracles were not done just to impress people. They were far more important than that. Every time in the gospel when Jesus did a miracle... He was trying to communicate something. He was trying to communicate something about himself and what he'd come to do. He was giving a tangible illustration of what the kingdom of God is all about. To help us to see this for ourselves, I'd like us to take a close look at verse 11. It is a verse of explanation after John has narrated all the action of the wedding feast. Let me read it to us. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Did you notice John's choice of words? He very deliberately does not use the word miracle for describing the turning of water into wine. Instead, he uses the word sign. This was a sign that Jesus performed. Of course, it was a miracle. None of us can turn water into wine, sadly. But what is important to John is that it was a sign that teaches us something important. I wonder if you've ever followed a series of signposts. You often find them at historical places and museums. There are some at Finnlager here. On As you make your way to the exhibit that you've come to see, the signposts guide you on the correct route. Very often the signs contain more than just a directional arrow. They also contain a a panel of information explaining to you what you're about to see. They prepare your heart and your mind so that when you finally meet the, the main attraction, you can understand its true work. People who rush through an exhibit and ignore all the signposts on the way often miss out and fail to appreciate what they've come to see. And this is exactly how John's gospel works. In verse 11, he describes the turning of water into wine as the first sign. The first sign on the way to full understanding. And as his gospel goes on, there will be six more. That's right, John structures his writing around seven signposts. Seven being the perfect number in his mind. And when you put these seven signposts together, you get a really good understanding of Jesus. These signs reveal the glory of God and instruct us to believe in him. And what this means is that when we're reading John's gospel, we need to read it at two different levels. We read it first at the human level, the very immediate impact that Jesus had on the people that he was meeting. I.e. it is a beautiful thing that Jesus took the shame away from this new wedding couple. But then we start looking for clues as to the deeper level of meaning. So let's now have a look at what this turning of water into wine Is supposed to be a sign for. What do we learn about who Jesus is? And and what do we learn about why he came to earth? Well, the great clue in this story comes in verse 4. When Mary, Jesus' mother, first saw that the wine had won out, she went to get her son. You see, Mary knows who Jesus is. Do you remember? The angels told her dramatically in the Christmas story. So Mary believes that her son can do something to help this poor couple. But on appealing to him, Jesus gives her a really strange answer. Verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now don't worry, the woman in that verse is not disrespectful. It's just the way the English translates the Greek. Jesus was not being rude to his mother here. But he is deliberately giving her a puzzle. What does it mean when he says, my hour has not yet come? But what it means is that even here, right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus knows full well where it's all headed. When Jesus talks about his hour, the hour of his greatest deed and his greatest glory, he is talking about the cross. Interestingly, to help us to see this, John ensures that the next time we meet Mary in this gospel is when she is at the foot of that cross, looking up at her son, hanging upon it. This was Jesus' hour. This was the moment that the whole of his life was headed for. This would be his greatest achievement. The cross is why Jesus came. He came to die in our place And save us from our sins. But just how would that work? Well, that is what this sign is all about. Did you notice when Jesus started making the preparations for his miracle, he gave some very specific instructions. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim. And he said, now draw it out and take it to the master of the banquet. And when he did so, the master of the banquet tasted that the water had been turned into wine. you see? Jesus didn't just take any old water. He took some very specific water. He took the water that had been set aside for the Jews to complete their rituals of purification. During the day, a Jew would endeavour to keep themselves clean both physically and spiritually. But inevitably, they would come into contact with some form of contamination. They might touch a dead animal, or they might have a bit of mould in their house. Or more particularly, they might sin in some way, by thought, or word, or deed. And because of this, before eating or drinking, or before entering a sacred area like the temple, they had to wash themselves. And as they poured water over their bodies, it was was a prayer to God asking him to cleanse them from their sin and make them fit again for his presence. And the Jews would wash like this several times every day. And when you know that, you can begin to see what Jesus is doing. In this dramatic sign, he is demonstrating that he has come to make a new way To purify the people. Indeed, a much better way. Because everybody prefers wine to water. And this was no ordinary wine. It was the very best. And then you look at the quantity of wine produced. Jesus took six jars, each holding up to 120 litres. That's 720 litres of the very best wine. That is a vast amount. This new method... Or purification that Jesus was bringing would be powerful enough and potent enough to purify far more people than the old customs and regime. So Jesus is bringing a new and deeper form of purification, one that would benefit a lot more people. But what was it? Well, as the gospel goes on, we know what wine comes to symbolize. It comes to symbolize his blood. What was it that he said at the Last Supper? He took a cup of wine and he gave thanks for it and he gave it to his disciples and they drank from it. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many. And truly I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in you in the kingdom of God. It is the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross when his hour will come, that will lead to our purification. The blood shed in his greatest moment. On the cross, his enemies will think they're defeating him, getting rid of him. But in that moment, Jesus is cleansing the world. Cleansing millions of people across the world, down through the centuries, who put their faith in him. In this story, the master of ceremonies is greatly surprised that the wine that Jesus produces is so much better than the wine that's gone before. And so it is with his blood as well. So much better than what's gone before. Jesus' blood reaches far more than the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we never need to slay an animal again in order to put us right with God. In his blood, we find all the forgiveness we will ever need. You see, on that day in Canaan, Jesus spared that wedding couple from a lifetime of shame and disgrace. But through his blood shed on the cross, we are all washed clean of our shame and disgrace. and Indeed, God looks at us as his beloved children. And of course, when you begin to see all of this, what the sign is pointing towards, there's one final level of symbolism hidden in this story. This great sign took place at a wedding feast, And how does the Bible describe the kingdom of God in Revelation? That's right. A great wedding feast. As the church and Christ come together on the day of his return. The only way we will get into that wedding banquet is through the shed blood of Jesus. The only way we will ever be clean enough is if we're purified by the wine he pours out on the cross. If we trust in Jesus one day, we will eat and drink with him in the kingdom of God. I hope that we can now see both levels to this story. The human level, where Jesus actually does a really beautiful thing. He, He spares this couple from disgrace. And the divine level. As he performs this sign, explaining what the cross will achieve and how we will be made fit to enter the kingdom of God. As promised to Nathaniel last week, Jesus has taken an ordinary moment and turned it into a divine opportunity. He has revealed his glory in the midst of our very real world and in doing so, he's transformed shame into joy. I don't know what it is that you might feel guilty about as you come here this evening. I don't know what shame or disgrace you carry in your life. But I know that Jesus wants to take it away. In this story, everything changed when the people at the wedding started to do what Jesus said. Mary said to the servants in verse 5, Do whatever he tells you. That instruction is given to us today. If we turn to Jesus and confess our sins, he will purify us from all unrighteousness. If we ignore him or pretend we don't need help, he won't. So let's turn to Jesus now and ask him to make us fit for glory through repentance and faith that is drinking the new wine of the kingdom.